You're listening to How They Did It and Why Will We Learn from the Experiences of Others. Today's episode is going to be one that is really interesting. I was really excited about this one because I got to sit down with Dr. Sunil Dond. Sunil Dond is a doctor who is working on the front lines during the COVID-19 pandemic. He's actually treating COVID patients, and I feel like he has invaluable information on the topic of the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as um, lifestyle medicine. So um, enjoy. Hello, everyone. In today's episode, this is really going to be a treat. We are going to get up close and personal with COVID-19, disease prevention, and vaccines. And to do that, we're going to be talking with a COVID-19 front line doctor. And I really am going to enjoy this because not only is he a COVID-19 doctor, but he's a lifestyle medicine practitioner. Dr. Sunil Dond, thank you so much for being here today. Great to be here. Awesome. So I really want the listeners to kind of get a, a full scope of you and your education background so that they can really connect with the information today because the information is so important. So can you please tell us about your educational path to becoming a doctor? Oh, certainly. So I grew up in the UK across the pond. I was born in London, uh, grew up over there, went to high school in a town uh, right outside the city. In the UK, uh, we have to decide on medical school very early on. We don't do Mm -hmm. college before med school, which is actually similar to most places in the world. So when I was 16, 17, I I toyed with lots of different career options, as one does when when they're young. Mm -hmm. For a while, I wanted to be an airline pilot and I wanted to be a vet. And then around 17, set on medicine. And I applied to medical school and went to medical school, got accepted in a city called Cardiff, which is about two hours west of London. Mm -hmm. In the UK, med school is five years long. And I have no idea where that five years went. It whizzed by, (laughs) uh, made a lot of friends, uh, a lot of studying, obviously. Um, Also got to travel a bit during that time. And after graduating, I worked in the UK's health service for about a year. Mm-hmm. And I knew actually towards the end of medical school that I really wanted the option of training in the United States and their special licensing exams, which you have to do in order to train over here. Mm-hmm. So I did them while I was in medical school. And then after med school, having worked for a little bit in the UK system, I came over here, did my medical residency in Baltimore. And uh, that was a three years internal medicine residency uh, since then. I've worked up and down the East Coast. I'm trained in internal medicine, started off mainly working in hospital. Mm -hmm. And then I realized after a couple of years that a lot of what I was seeing at the front lines was totally related to chronic comorbidities and poor lifestyle. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, this is true with lots of our conditions which we deal with, diabetes, heart disease, much of them are as a result of poor lifestyle choices that we make. And that got me really into lifestyle medicine. And I improved those aspects of my life as well, having read more into it uh, in terms of eating a healthier diet, exercising more regularly. And now I practice a mix of inpatients. I work, still work as a hospital doctor, which is what I've been doing a lot over the last year with COVID. But I also work in a clinic practicing lifestyle medicine. So really helping patients with uh, adopting better lifestyle habits. We track their parameters, whether it be their blood pressure, their cholesterol levels, and we guide them through how they can improve those through better diet and exercise. 
So that's where I'm at right now, internal medicine, doing a mix of inpatient and outpatient medicine with a focus on lifestyle. Now, thank you so much for that. Now, because I've been stalking you a little bit, obviously, I also know that you are a certified uh, personal trainer, and I believe you're a certified you're certified in nutrition as well. In addition to all your other uh, doctorly uh, qualifications, <laughs> medical qualifications. Well, my, my nutrition qualifications are, are self taught from extensive reading and also writing. Uh, mm -hmm. But you're correct. Yeah, I am a, a personal trainer, certified as well. Awesome. So I, I put my patients through their paces as well. I'm not too hard on them in the hospital, but um, yeah, I know they certainly should be moving around as much as possible. I love it. I love it. Now, the way I found you was through YouTube. And the reason I found you was because I was trying to be proactive about what I could do to treat like a mild case of COVID if I got it at home, you know, what I could do at home to just kind of take care of myself and my family. And I stumbled upon your video, five tips for recovering from COVID at home. And that video has gotten 1.4 million views. And I have to say what I liked about that is the video was so straightforward. And I mean, you just go on there and you just like mic drop. The viewer videos I noticed on your channel are usually about four minutes, but you drop so many facts <laughs> in <laughs> such a short amount of time. I don't know how you do that. That's incredible. But um, what really shocked me was the fact that you were kind of, you know, more than what I'd ex I've experienced um, for the most part, not always, but you were advocating for the patient. And again, talking about the healthy lifestyle, which is something that I think we, uh, most people agree, you know, we need that more um, in healthcare. So um, now another point that I really liked about that video too, which was gargling with salt water because just FYI, if you haven't seen that video, that's one of the uh, tricks in there. And that kind of helps to kill bacteria in the throat. Can you tell me a little bit, just a little bit more about that? Yeah, of course. Well, I, well, firstly, thank you for finding me and, and watching my, my video. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I, I like to keep things as straightforward as possible as if I'm actually talking to a patient. Mm -hmm. And I find a lot of doctors out there when they communicate, they're at this whole different level and they will bumble on about something for five minutes which could be said in very simple terms in 10 seconds so that's mm -hmm. very much something I try to do in my videos and yes in that um, home COVID uh, tips video I touch upon many things including uh, that very simple thing which we can do you can you can always gargle with salt water or Listerine and that is very good at killing pathogens um, I mean salt water traditionally is a, a treatment for, for wounds mm -hmm. and what you want to do is um, try to to kill as many pathogens naturally as you can is it going to be a cure for covid no but it's mm -hmm. a simple thing that will uh, potentially neutralize a lot of viruses which have, have seeded in your throat incredible incredible now we're going to talk um a little bit more on some of those um more natural things in a second but in terms of you know COVID. And since you are a frontline doctor regarding the COVID cases that you've been seeing in the hospital at this point, if you could pinpoint for us two common denominators that you've seen as a trend in patients that have had severe cases of COVID and ending up passing away. That is a great question. I, I would say that the two common denominators I've seen are um, related to risk factors, actually, which are well known for COVID. So the patients that I've seen pass away from COVID have been elderly, so advanced mm -hmm. age, and they've had chronic comorbidities. So other mm -hmm. conditions, whether it be diabetes, lung disease, heart disease, kidney issues, those help 
make any patient very, very frail, unfortunately. And COVID, like any virus, loves attacking frail bodies with mm. weakened immune systems. And thankfully, knock on wood, I haven't seen any young, healthy patients um, not only pass away, but also even be admitted to the hospital yet. They've always been risk factors. I mean, occasionally I've, I've heard about patients who don't have risk factors, but in my experience, the, the two biggest denominators are advanced age and comorbidities in terms of patients who've actually passed away. And I would include obesity as a, a massive comorbidity as well, which is not talked about enough. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's definitely something that um, is definitely something to consider seriously. Um, okay, so let's say someone, um, you know, let's get on the vaccines a little bit. So, and this is just a random question. I'm going to be throwing totally random ones at you this entire <laughs> interview. And if Go I ahead. say something, test me. <laughs> yes, if, if I'm yeah. wonky or crazy, I want you to just busted, you know, just do your thing. But um, so why aren't this is just and I've had this question for a long time. This question was actually prompted when I was researching vaccines when my my babies, um, you know, were going to get them, which they got, you know, the vaccines, all that stuff for kids is just awesome. Happy we have it. But why aren't, you know, for for older uh, ones who need to get certain vaccines like the COVID vaccine, are they measured by body weight? Should they be? What are your thoughts on that? That is another excellent point. Now, traditionally, I'm not aware of any vaccines which are measured by body weight. Mm -hmm. uh, and many medicines aren't, to be fair, but some are, especially injections. Uh, typically, um, as far as I know, vaccines uh, ha have all traditionally been the same. Um, obviously, this vaccine is slightly different in terms of the, the type of vaccine. But traditionally, if you're talking about a virus, it's an inactivated or killed virus that is injected into you to elicit an immune response. That's what mm -hmm. it does. And there hasn't been any indication or, or science that I'm aware of that that has to be weight based. But it's a good point. Maybe um, more research needs to be done into whether certain people need higher doses and certain people need lower doses. But that's not not currently done. Very interesting. Yeah, that was just kind of, you know, I feel like maybe the the childhood vaccines, probably that could be a consideration. And I think I stumbled upon some information that that was, you know, kind of, the, but kind of the adult ones, like example, me, I'm a super petite woman, I weigh like 108 pounds. And then yeah. when I think about it, like my husband, who is almost six feet tall, and, you know, 200 pounds, I'm like, well, yeah. he's like double my size, why are we getting the same amount of stuff? Yeah. You yeah. know, so I don't know, but th that's not anything bad. Maybe it isn't needed, you know, but it's just a question. And I, I'm yeah, no, it's a, a very decent question. OK, um, so more research is needed on that. And we'll kind of yeah, just I will have to research that, too. But it's, I'm not aware of any vaccine which is ever ever weight based. Interesting. Um, OK, so now let's say someone has already had COVID. Should they still get the vaccine? And if so, when? $64 million question. And I've actually <laughs> made videos on this as well. Yeah. So the, the simple fact is, if, if you've had COVID, you will have some degree of natural immunity to it because mm -hmm. you've recovered from it. So you've developed your own antibodies. If you, if you hadn't um, recovered, the virus would have overwhelmed you. So the fact that you've recovered means that you've developed antibodies. Mm -hmm. Now, the authorities currently are, are saying that they, they've had different views on this since the beginning. Uh, previously, uh, my understanding was they recommended waiting three months. So your antibodies would have either 
theoretically decline during that time to the point where you need a vaccine. Now they're recommending it as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. And I am still looking at the data myself. I I do believe that in the medical and healthcare field, this is a very gray area. Mm. And what I'm advising people to do, especially if they've recently recovered, is consider getting an antibody test, which Mm. your doctor can order. And if you still have antibodies, that should be a discussion between you and your doctor as to whether you need the vaccine. That to me seems like a a natural medical question. And perhaps certain people want to play it safer. Mm -hmm. They would want to, because they're high risk, perhaps get the vaccine. In other cases, maybe not, or maybe people are worried about side effects. And if they've already got antibodies, that would be more of an indication to perhaps delay it. But it's a very individualized question. Right. Um, I kind of think, you know, where I was coming from, you know, when I was just thinking about that myself was it was basically something that you had mentioned in one of your videos, which was, you know, if you've got the antibodies, like if you did get the test, you know, after having COVID and you do still have the antibodies, why would you then, you know, double up, you know, is it needed, you know, to, to have the shot immediately cause harm? Yeah. These these are all things we're learning a lot more about with time, but don't let anyone tell you that this is a settled debate. You get a lot of unfortunately absolutists in medicine. And even I'm coming from the position of saying this is a a gray area and it's up for debate. Different medical professionals will tell you different things. And I don't think it's black and white. Right. Because I was thinking about it as well. You know, um, the the antibodies could last different from one person. You know, myself, it could last maybe six months and then my husband maybe lasted three. So, you know, there's really, um, you know, but I'm a layman. I'm not really sure, but that's just my. No, no, exactly. And in the interest of full disclosure, I mean, my video, I haven't had the vaccine yet for that reason. I actually got COVID in February of 2020 Mm -hmm. and I'm testing my antibodies every month and Mm -hmm. I still have antibodies now and it's like a year and three months later and I'm yet to meet any doctor who tells me you should absolutely get the vaccine if you have antibodies I mean maybe a few months years down the line there may be more indication that a vaccine covers different strains but right now the vaccines that are available are the same strain that I got so I don't think that that's a, a valid argument Absolutely. I agree 100%. And thank you so much for sharing that with me because that right there is huge. So you're saying you got COVID February of last year, right? Mm -hmm. And you still got antibodies. That is huge. That's incredibly encouraging, actually, because, wow, wow, that's huge. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, and this is different in everybody. I know people who've had COVID and check antibodies and they they haven't had a response. Um, So I'm tracking mine and I, believe in fact I know I'm following the science and uh, yeah if and when they wane absolutely and had I not had COVID I would have got the vaccine but I am a doctor who thinks logically and scientifically Mm -hmm. so that's why I'm holding off for now. Exactly now question here because that's just something that you said just piqued my interest so I just have to ask you you said that you know your your antibodies are lasting you know longer you have them for a year now but you know people who have gotten COVID and then have gotten tested and don't have the antibodies still do you think that because you are obviously a person who embraces a healthy lifestyle do you think that that makes a difference in how long your body holds on to that information you know um, when you've had a virus and how to fight it off again are people who aren't as healthy do they tend to lose that protection faster 
Yeah, I, I would think that that makes logical sense. And I, I'd like to think that, yes, because I'm somebody who's embracing a healthy lifestyle, I would be better placed to, to mount an antibody response and, and keep it uh, mm. because I try my best to take care of my immune system. Could it be genetics? Could I just be lucky? Sure, mm -hmm. I mean, they're possible mm -hmm. as well. But what we do know, and we don't talk anywhere near enough about, is that everybody can always be doing things to keep their immune system as strong as possible. This notion that we're just completely helpless here is not true. And I always draw even the analogy of, um, like, this used to happen to me. In times in your life when you're stressed, how many times do you pick up a viral infection? It happens to everybody. When yes. I was in medical school, I, periods when I was doing exams, and I was not sleeping well, I'd always get sick. I mean, this happens to everybody. It's right in front of us. We know it ourselves. Viruses love attacking weakened immune systems. So you mm. can always be working on that. Now, it's not going to be a cure. It's not going to be 100% protective, but it will right. absolutely make a hell of a difference. I love it. I love it. That's awesome. That's so encouraging. Um, okay, now let's move on to some heavier stuff here uh, with the whole, you know, vaccines and everything. So this is a question that I've had because this is something that, you know, affects me and others of us in this kind of sub uh, set here. But is it logical for people with autoimmune diseases to be cautious about getting the vaccines? Is that like that's silly. Why would you ever think that? Or is there any um, merit to that argument? I really love your feedback. Sure. And, and do you know anyone with autoimmune diseases? Is this personal to you? Yes. So for me, I actually have Hajimoto's and oh, wow. I've, okay. I've spent years getting my health together. Like I am completely dedicated to doing the best that I can. I just try to do the best that I can. And I don't want any setbacks because of just sure. a lack of information or maybe, you know, if I waited a year, a better vaccine would be available for people like me or, you know, things like that. I'm not an anti-vaxxer by any means, have all my shots, kids all got theirs, but, you know, um, just a little bit more information for people like me, I think would put a lot of fears at ease. And, um, you know, so, so based on that, what do you think? Well, firstly, congratulations. That's a wonderful story to hear that you had a, an autoimmune condition and you worked on getting your, your, your lifestyle in order. That, that is no small, small achievement. So, so well done <laughs> Thank you. on that. That's, that's great to hear. And I completely concur. And in fact, I even made a, another video about this relatively recently is that I think the medical community is approaching vaccine hesitancy completely wrong. Like we've got this sort of absolutist binary way of thinking that if you mm -hmm. even ask a question, you're anti-vax. I mean, yeah. that's completely nonsense. The amount of people that are anti-vax in the general public is really tiny. I think in my whole career, I may have met two that mm -hmm. are anti-vax. I mean, it's okay to ask questions. And I actually think that's intelligent. And I think where the medical community loses trust is when they come in with this kind of message, just get the shot, get the shot, get the shot. You're not allowed to ask questions. I mean, that is totally the wrong way for a doctor yeah. to even talk. I feel <laughs> so strongly about that. I believe in sitting down with my patients. And I know that people with autoimmune disease have a very real reason why mm -hmm. they may be hesitant. And what they yeah. need is reassurance from doctors. So what somebody like you yourself who has a history of Hashimoto's would need is to go over the pros and cons. Uh, what is your own other unique medical history? How much are you in contact with other high risk people? Mm -hmm. Are there other people that the doctor, doctors know who've had your condition 
and have got the vaccine? Have they had reactions to it? But this needs to be a very, very deep, empathetic and compassionate conversation. And I think it's totally okay because we do know that people with autoimmune may be more vulnerable to side effects. And you have to have that reassurance. You can't be, quote unquote, forced to have something or pressured into it. So my, my advice would be just that. I hope you've got an empathetic doctor that you can talk in detail to about this and then can weigh up the pros and cons and hopefully reassure you if the benefits outweigh the risks. Right. And I think you made a, a good point there is I think in the medical profession, because that's a term that's used commonly, do the benefits outweigh the risk? And in most yeah. cases, the, the benefits of whatever medical treatment it is usually does out, exactly. outweigh the risk. Absolutely. But yeah. This situation, though, I just feel is a little different only because, you know, we're, this whole situation is a little bit different. So for me, um, that has been the reason. And so I'm just right now, I currently I am not vaccinated as well. However, I do want to say um, disclaimer, guys, um, I fortunately am in a position where that is a little easier for me to do. You know, as a doctor mentioned, if you have to work with people, you know, um, I, I work from home. I, I, re I don't even go to the grocery store. You know, we have our food delivered. Not everyone can do that. So there's a, a set of circumstances that, exactly. you know, kind of has to go along with that. And if you choose not to do that, I do feel that you have um, a higher responsibility to say, okay, well, I'm not getting vaccinated. So I really need to be good about social distancing and wearing a mask and doing all of the things that we're supposed to do. Um, and if you're not going to do it, get the vaccine. You know what I mean? Yeah, like if yeah you that's, that's very well said. I mean, as a doc, <laughs> well, I told you my own personal situation. Had I not already had COVID and have high level of antibodies, of course, I would have got the vaccine. Right. But all of my conversations so far have been with high risk groups. We've been really focused on the elderly, comorbidities, uh, other people who may be in contact with people. And if anyone is hesitant, I sit down with them. But mm -hmm. we've been really focusing on trying to get high risk groups protected first. Right. Because there's still a lot of high risk people out there who are not protected. That, and, that's... And, and the conversation usually goes along the lines of, well, the, the, the possibility of having COVID in you would be far worse than having the vaccine, mm -hmm. i.e. the benefits of the vaccine outweigh the risks. What would be worse for you, getting COVID or the vaccine? And usually it's COVID. But I'm happy to have these one-on-one -on -one conversations. I'm not going to give patients a mechanical message. I do not do that. That's not the way I practice medicine. If anyone has concerns, who's my patient, I want to sit down, look them in the eye and talk to them and reassure them. That's so encouraging because, you know, it's just um, sometimes you, you just don't get that. And sometimes it's just because people are busy. You know, we love our doctors. We appreciate everything that the medical community does. I, I have had some amazing doctors over the years, you know, yeah. so I mean, it just but you know, um, so now I want to kind of get into a kind of subset of what we were talking about there. Um, I mentioned, you know, for a lot of us, you know, who do have these, you know, pre existing conditions or what have you, there's a level of anxiety of a flare up. And um, that's kind of been another reason for me, because when you do have a, a um, you're in autoimmune or whatever, you do kind of have some some anxiety kind of running in the background. If you've had a huge issue where you've had to be hospitalized and things like that. So for me, I kind of felt the need to kind of prioritize my mental health also in that way a little bit, because I'm like, okay, well, if I feel forced to do something I don't want to do, and I end up doing it, 
And then now I've got to sit here and have panic attacks and anxiety every day for the next <laughs> like six months or whatever. You know what I yeah. mean? And that's that's going to be something different for everybody. But the reason I say that is because I'm seeing that, you know, um, some ones that I know have said, oh, my gosh, like I got this and I've, I've been feeling horrible. I shouldn't have got like vaccine remorse, if you will, um, which I think most people are honestly going to be OK with the vaccines. I really do. But it's just a time of uncertainty. So um, there just isn't anything wrong with waiting if you can, if you can. That's 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 the key. Um, now, next question that I have for you, though, is um, do what do you think about that? Do you think it's reasonable to prioritize mental health regarding that whole bit? Oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, mental health and physical health are intrinsically linked together as mm -hmm. well. Let's not forget that. So I, I, I think that's perfectly reasonable. Yeah, you, you have to you have to think of the mental health component of this, whether it's because, yeah, you have underlying anxiety and you need that level of reassurance or you want to wait. Um, I think it would be worse if you were pressured potentially into doing something that you didn't want to do, didn't feel was right. And heaven forbid, if you had any, any lingering side effect afterwards, that could also be that that could also be magnified by the fact that you're stressed and worried. Right. I agree. I agree. Um, okay. So let's shift gears a little bit here. Um, scientist, uh, Dr. Caitlin Carrico, she has been the driving force behind the mRNA um, technology since the 90s. And um, I've been fascinated with her work. I even have one podcast episode buried somewhere <laughs> um, that I did kind of just about her. But because you're in the field and I'm not, <laughs> could you please just briefly explain the differences between mRNA vaccinations and traditional vaccinations? Sure. Well, traditional vaccinations typically, and we touched on this earlier, you inject a small portion of either an inactivated virus, part of a virus or a dead virus into someone. You elicit an immune response so that next time the person encounters the actual virus, mm -hmm. their body will be ready for it and you'll have some antibodies to it. You won't just be coming from a position of zero antibodies or recognizing that virus. Mm -hmm. So that's, those are how traditional viruses work. mRNA is a little bit different. So basically how they work is the mRNA is injected into you and it trains your body to produce the viral protein, which then your body recognizes as foreign, attacks it, and you develop antibodies that way. So it's, it's different because it's not an inactivated or dead virus. It's a genetic component of the virus. Interesting. Okay. And I think so that it's new technology in terms of virus uh, vaccines. Typically, we haven't done that before. I think, um, you know, some of the things that can be done, though, just from the bit of like layman research that I've done on mRNA vaccinations, I think you know, in the future, we're going to have some amazing things possibly develop because, you know, yeah. it's incredible technology. So for those of you listening, I don't want to, you know, go down that whole rabbit hole, but look up the mRNA vaccinations and look up the actual research. Go to um, this doctor. Um, Dr. Carrico is actually the, the head of the board at Pfizer. So um, go there and get some really good information on mRNA vaccinations. If you've got anxiety around the whole, you know, oh, it's new technology thing. Yeah technology, you know, it's great when we have these new technologies, you know, as we progress, we get this, these great things. 
Um, okay, uh, let's move along to another issue that has been arising um, with the vaccines, which is blood clots. Now, I have a question for you, and I do have a, a personal share on this one as well. Um, is it reasonable for people with a history of blood clots to be cautious about taking the vaccines. Now, before before you answer there, let me just give you this scenario. Um, My mother, which this is what has actually happened, has cancer and diabetes, okay? Um, She naturally developed a blood clot like six months well before she ever took a vaccine. And... um, that was just because, I mean, you got stuff going on. She's got diabetes, you got cancer, you're going through chemo, you got stuff going on. That's that's a thing that can just happen, a blood clot. Um, but when she took her first uh, shot of Pfizer, she had developed another blood clot. So, um, and it was in her right leg. And then when she got her second shot, she developed two more um, in the right wow. leg, one in the left, as well as one in the lung. <laughs> and that was all like within a week of getting the shot each time. And so I I don't want to say, ah, it's a shot. Eh." Yeah. What I'm saying is it could be, it's plausible to think so. And that's no one's fault. You know, we're, we're trying to, to, to deal with the pandemic. So we, you know, the scientists are trying to do the best that they can, but this is kind of what I was talking about early, where some of these subsets of people who do have, you know, um, a really weakened immune system, um, maybe they, they just need a little bit more attention in this area. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, firstly, I'm, I'm very sorry to hear about your, your mom. That's a, a very unfortunate sequence of events. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's natural if anyone's in that circumstance and their loved one has the vaccine and within a few days has issues, you're naturally going to put two and two together. That's that's not um, not something which is uh, which would be an entirely um, unthinkable thing to do. I think that's entirely natural to do that. And of course, we've been seeing on the news there have been side effects of blood clots. Certain vaccines more than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are, however, very very rare. Um, mm-hmm. You have the vaccine given to millions of people, and it's obvious that that hundreds of thousands of people are not getting blood clots. Otherwise that would be reported and and the vaccine would be pulled very fast. But the problem is even if it's one in every 20,000 people, that could potentially be devastating for that person. And that person is obviously probably not going to ever want the vaccine again if they've Mm -hmm. suffered serious consequences. Of course, they they wouldn't. I, I wouldn't. I mean, I'll be perfectly honest. If I took a medicine of any description and had a serious health consequence, and in my mind I was thinking it was related, obviously I'd be blaming that medication. And it's it's very unfortunate. Um, but the, the the simple fact of the matter is that if you're rolling out a vaccine to millions of people, there will be a certain percentage who have issues, whether it's blood clots or other syndromes or side effects. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm very sorry that 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 happened to your mum. Right. I think it's just one of those things that if anything, and we don't know because this is all so new, you know, there, this all yeah. has to be researched and studied farther. Um, but I just think, and this is just my hunch because she has the predisposition for it. She developed one on her own without even having the vaccine that there may have been something that just exacerbated for her. Um, most yeah. people who, who have, you know, who get the vaccines aren't going to get blood clots, you know, exactly. but she's yeah. got a ton of things going on. So I would only be thinking um in terms of hesitancy regarding that for people who um 
maybe have have a, a history of blood clots. Yeah, yeah, and that would be another discussion with with your doctor. Hmm. Hmm. Um, okay. Now, what do you think, though, on this topic that researchers could do a little bit better when we are rolling out these new vaccines and things like that to kind of um, have better indication of you know possible reactions like this for people in these um, smaller smaller communities smaller with groups, yeah yeah yeah. I mean, there's a very strong argument to be made. I mean, if we take the Pfizer trial, for example, Pfizer mm-hmm. was the first vaccine in November, which announced it had produced a, a successful vaccine. And basically, when you actually go and look at the trial data, which surprisingly, not a lot of even healthcare professionals did, you right. had what 40,000 people, and the average age of people was in the early 50s, and only 20%. So one in five mm-hmm. had one or more health conditions. So it was a very healthy group of people. And if we're talking about people who get badly affected by COVID, as I already said, typically they're people who are older and sicker mm-hmm. than, than more younger people. And what I would say is in future, um, vaccine trials should include more of those vulnerable risk groups. You shouldn't pre-select a, a healthy population if you're primarily worried about the sicker population getting a particular illness. That may be logistically difficult to do as well and may complicate studies but I think it's a very reasonable argument for the future. Right. One saving grace to that is that generally it's known that uh, or been observed that the people who react the most to the vaccine in terms of side effects typically have stronger immune systems. So we see oh, okay. younger people, females who we know have stronger immune systems in general than males. You guys win again. Uh, people <laughs> who've you. had COVID before. So uh, in general, older people have had fewer side effects than younger people. So that, that's the one saving grace of that. They're generally the more frail you are, the less likely you are to respond to a vaccine negatively. Oh, that's so interesting. Wow, look at that. Wow, thank you because so Because your much. immune system is weaker yet. Yeah, it's not being, the, the stronger your immune system, the more likely it is to be primed by the vaccine. And that's when you get side effects. Mm, I see, I see, I see. Okay, that kind of ties in what we were talking about earlier. Got it, got it. Um, okay, so now um, let's talk about uh, these mutations a little bit here. Um, so basic science kind of tells us that each time a virus goes from one person to the next, a small mutation happens, but that's insignificant, you know, most of the time. So then how does it get to being, hey, that's insignificant to like what we're seeing with this triple uh, variant in India, where it's like a big, you know, this is a muta- mutation of concern that, you know, we have to follow and has harsher effects and everything. Yeah, so viruses, um, especially unstable viruses like coronavirus, like COVID-19 is actually proving to be, will mutate. And there are reasons why India may have been a more, a, a, a more, I would say, um, better, quote unquote, better environment for COVID-19 to mutate in because it's a very populated country mm-hmm. and people live in close proximity to each other. So you have the, the best incubator there for virus mutations. But if we think about this scientifically and logically, viruses are living just like us. And just mm-hmm. like us, they're constantly looking for ways to survive. And what takes them, uh, what takes them just a week to accomplish in terms of ver- variants, mutations, and uh, the natural selection process would take humans hundreds of thousands of years because they're replicating so quickly. 
So I'm not surprised at all by the Indian variant. I think if it wasn't the Indian variant we were hearing about, it might be the French variant、mm-hmm. or the Ohio variant.、Yeah. Viruses are going to mutate, and this gets to an important point about how realistic we are viewing this as well, because we have an unstable virus which is going to find. A way through, and my own theory is even if you vaccinated a hundred percent of people, that wouldn't mean that the virus would just disappear. It would still be there among、mm-hmm. people, and it's constantly looking for ways to break through. So the best case scenario is for COVID nineteen to end up like a very mild illness, like the flu.、Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, it will still badly affect those vulnerable groups I was talking about. But vaccinations are not going to make it disappear purely because it's proved so far to be an unstable virus that is capable of mutations, and this is going to keep on happening over and over. And it's important that the authorities give this message very clearly, so that society doesn't have unrealistic expectations that it's going to magically disappear because it's not, unfortunately. I actually agree with that 100 because you know when you can kind of I, I was reading something somewhere、um, recently、um, when you can really kind of get the clear picture of what is actually happening and accept the reality you actually do a lot better、um, you know mentally and and everything even though it can sound a little grim we still have a lot to be hopeful about、um, there's lots of great things happening、um, but I think it is important to be a realist as well.、Um, Because that's really how we're going to get anywhere、um, in this situation. Some of the other stuff, you know, people, you know, don't want to wear masks.、Uh, masks don't work. Blah blah blah. They do. <laughs> I'm just going to say that, right? Like they do. But what settings? Because you've had a couple videos on all of this stuff, which I really would encourage everybody to check out. You know, you talked about the India variant. You talk about mask wearing.、Um, so regarding the masks, where should we definitely? Be wearing masks, and where is it okay to be? Like, you know what? This is a situation where you you're probably okay if you don't have a mask. Yes, I mean、uh, masks obviously have become very much a, a part of life throughout、mm-hmm. most parts of the country, some more than others over the last、uh, 14 months or so.、Mm-hmm. And generally,、um, COVID nineteen, like most respiratory viruses, will almost exclusively spread indoors. And I feel we've also got the public messaging wrong. I can tell you in the Northeast,、um, where I have been in Massachusetts,、mm-hmm. we got this a bit wrong at the end of last year, where we were really focused on wearing masks outdoors, and there was a mandate that you have to wear masks outdoors at all times, even if you're on a hike alone, if you're in the middle of a park, wear a mask, and that's what people were doing as a result. And it shifted focus away. From where COVID nineteen really spreads, which is indoors, and that's why the rates of many respiratory viruses go up in the winter because we're all indoors in close proximity.、Mm-hmm. So, in answer to your question, and I know this is rapidly changing as we're relaxing restrictions across the country.、Mm-hmm. In general, you rarely need to worry. In a country like the US, unlike India, where you're packed shoulder to shoulder with people, in the US, if you're outdoors, the risk of getting COVID nineteen is minuscule unless you're exceptionally close to people, hugging them, touching them, that kind、right. of thing. Indoors is where you want to focus, and I would encourage even if people want to take off their masks now because mandates are,、uh, are being cancelled, be very careful if you're in a high risk group. If you're elderly, if you have those comorbidities, as I said, COVID nineteen is unfortunately not going to disappear, and there's going to be variants, there's going to be mutations, and you could well catch it. If you have a reason to be worried about catching it, I would still advise in those indoor settings. Grocery stores, other crowded environments, public transport—to still wear wear the mask. 
Right. That's what I plan on doing. You know, I plan on just kind of operating the same way I've been operating. Um, outdoors, of course, is, is less concerning for sure. And indoors is, and that's interesting that they kind of are, are did it that way with, oh, if you're outside, it's like fresh air, people, it's moving, yeah, it's okay. It's good for your health, <laughs> lifestyle medicine. Yeah, I, it was the wrong message to give in Massachusetts last year. It didn't yeah. do anything to, to stop the spread. We should have been focused on indoors. Yep, that's that's the, the danger zone. I stay out of them places as much as I can. <laughs> um, Wise lady. <laughs> okay. Um, now, uh, let's, we're kind of getting to the end of our segment here, guys, but I want to do a couple of things uh, still. Let's talk a little bit now about the authorities and like the global considerations. Okay. Um, and for me, in my mind, I think, and again, I'm nobody, guys, I'm just a person on the internet or whatever, but I think that you'd have to have a collaboration of all the countries kind of working together to to coordinate like vaccine efforts and maybe even some restrictions on travel to really get this under full control. And that's relative based on the information you shared with us, you know, um, here it's not going to fully 100% go away. But if we want to get to the point to where it's kind of much lower um, infection rates daily in the global population, because I feel like, you know, if another country has it, and as long as people are going back and forth, it's still going to keep mutating and going and nothing is really going to change. What do you think the controlling authorities should do or could do to reduce the global spread? Well, firstly, you are not just a random person on the internet. Over the last 30 minutes, you have asked me smarter questions than many doctors and scientists. So (laughs) well done on that. You're really getting to crucial, (laughs) crucial points here. And with Mm -hmm. the travel situation, I would say that the best way to try to contain it from a travel standpoint is to have rapid tests. And I am not the biggest fan of vaccine passports. I think they won't work for many reasons, including very obviously, if you live in a Western country, there are civil liberties reasons why you can't restrict people from traveling around. Mm -hmm. Uh, They also may lure people into a false sense of security with new variants. I am all in favor, and I don't know why we're not capable of doing this in 2021, a really rapid, say, a five-second test that's accurate and cheap. Mm. People can do, maybe you just like, give a bit of saliva, you breathe onto something, and it will tell you whether you have COVID. And I don't see why we can't have those widespread. I think that would, that would help the most. Wow, yeah. Before I... people board a plane, they travel internationally, it would tell you right away and, and stop cases, uh, which, which could potentially spread to many, many other people. Yeah, I think that you're you're so spot on because people will just get to doing all kind of weird, shady things to forge things and just all kinds of stuff just to, yeah, it's, I really, uh, I hope that that's something that they can embrace. I have seen um, in my local area, some spots that do some form of rapid test. I don't know exactly yeah. what, pro- you know, it's probably not as advanced as what you're mentioning, but yeah, I think that would be a great solution. So we'll see if they, they hop on board with that. Now, um, I do know that um, in addition to, you know, you being a doctor and everything like that, you do public speaking. Um, you have your whole YouTube channel, um, Med Stoic Lifestyle Medicine. Please check that out. Out, guys it's an amazing resource for very valuable information and quick you know it's quick um please tell me why are you doing 
what you are doing? Why are you into the health behind it all? Why are you advocating for patients? Why are you doing this? I am very, very passionate about health and wellness. And I've mentioned the lifestyle medicine aspect of things, how we don't focus enough on everyday things we can always be doing to keep ourselves well. And I really, really want to push this message out to society. And obviously, the the last year has been different for everyone. I have been working at the front lines more. And I've seen firsthand how much lifestyle even plays into COVID. And I don't think we've even talked about that enough from the highest levels down to local public health departments. We know that for younger people, and I'm going to say younger than 60, the biggest risk factor for being hospitalized with COVID is being overweight or obese. And this Mm -hmm. is the one factor which is in our control. And sadly, in the United States, but to be fair, it's all Western countries, rates of obesity have spiraled out of all control. And to not address that, uh, these these issues can be sensitively addressed with people. And if we're talking... If we're talking about COVID, that's a very obvious area where we can lower our risk of severe illness. But think of everything else that will result from an improved focus on lifestyle medicine. We will all have lower, there'll be lower rates of diabetes, heart disease, other illnesses in society. So that's where the lifestyle medicine interest really comes from and has really escalated for me over the last year. And I want to focus on the COVID and lifestyle medicine link. In terms of mental health, so my channel is called MedStoic because I do believe, and we've already talked about this, that one's mental and physical health are linked Mm -hmm. together intrinsically. If you were to ask most doctors, I see this all the time in the hospital, you ask people who've been hospitalized and you'll say, well, what's been happening over the last few weeks? months and they'll say something like oh yeah actually I've been really stressed I haven't been myself I'm Mm -hmm. not sleeping and boom people get sick at those points in their life so to focus on the physical health is one thing but I feel that it's inseparable from the mental health side of things so I also try in my videos to promote a message of keeping well mentally to dealing with stress in your life to sleeping well to working with anxiety And the Stoic part of that is very interesting because Stoicism is an ancient Greco-Roman philosophy. And it's really helped me on a personal level over the last couple of years. And I feel like Stoicism, we actually live in the complete opposite of a Stoic society today. Mm -hmm. If the definition of Stoicism is being more restrained, controlling your emotions. We are all about unrestrained emotions. And you see this every day on social media. And it's not good for our mental wellness or our long-term happiness. Many people have a, um, a false idea of what stoicism is. It's not keeping everything to yourself, putting up with things. The stoics were very much people of action. It's about always trying to use rational thought and logic to guide your decisions. And that's something I really try to do in my COVID videos as well. You will always have an emotional side to things. We're all human, but ultimately it's the rational and logical choices that we make that lead to success in our lives. I agree with that 100%. I mean, it's just, um, I really feel on these these sensitive matters, you have to, um, when it comes to your your personal, physical, and mental health, develop that 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 outlook of what's the information, you know, what is the you know the science, what are the studies, 
how do I make the best decision? And for me, it's I literally will write down and I did that with my anything that I had to get done with my health prior or, you know, now during this COVID time, here's a cons list, here's a pros list, like whichever one it is, even if I'm not happy with the result, I'm going to do the one that is what I should do you know, take my emotional uh, feelings out of it. And and that helps me to really operate. It keeps anxiety at bay. It keeps you calm. It it grounds you and it helps you to not be affected by the negativity um, of of people, people around or or media or what have you. So I would definitely encourage people to to follow your channel because your your um, your videos really do really um, touch us in that way. Do your research, do your homework, you know, connect with people who really, really know their stuff and demonstrate it by the way they present information. And again, that's the reason why I really wanted to to do this interview, because I love the simple, concise way that you presented the information. I mean, anyone could understand it. So that for me was just just incredible. So I want to thank you so much for being here today. I want to also thank you for Working on the front lines of COVID, this has been a scary time in the medical community. I know people who work in the medical field who have quit during COVID because they're like, dude, it's too much. Like, I... I can't do this. And and no, no harm, you know, if they had to do that, they felt that that's what they need to do. But we appreciate those two who are sticking it out, who are working hard for us. You know, you're you're advocating for patients, you're encouraging people to, to have this healthy lifestyle in addition to and that's what I strongly believe. I believe that you you have to listen to your doctor and you also have to have the the health you know your eating and your lifestyle when you do those two in equal parts that is when you will actually get somewhere and that's how i was able to transform my own health so um you can't say ah, i hate doctors not listening to them or hate nutritionalists they don't know anything why can't they coexist guys like just be there together, you know? So um, anyway, um, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It's been good to talk. (laughs) Okay, guys, I want to thank you so much for listening. Have a great day and see you in the next episode. 